RX. Today on Studio 360, 44 years later, moviegoers are still throwing rice and doing the pelvic thrust. Rocky Horror is about the sexual revolution in America and how insane the country went. Our latest American icon, the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Plus, I got into a conversation with a literary agent and he said, hey, I saw on Facebook that you got this new tattoo. Who is this woman? How a monster movie fan's tattoo led to her new book about the 1950s Hollywood pioneer who designed the creature from the Black Lagoon. It's a Studio 360 hour all about monsters and how monster stories can remind us of our humanity. That's all right after this. Studio 360. I'm Kurt Anderson, and I'm sitting on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. This first level of garden. This is right Thomas Jefferson's vegetable garden. I like to have the roasted chicken piece. Very well done. Editing is all about timing. I try to get a little bit away from the actual subject. You must get sick of your own voice, right? Studio 360. It's Kurt Anderson. Science couldn't explain it, but there it was, alive in the deep, deep waters of the Amazon. A throwback to a creature that had existed a hundred million years ago. Immensely strong and destructive. That is how a movie trailer sounded in 1954. In this case, a trailer for The Creature from the Black Lagoon. See Titanic underwater battles never dreamed of before in this most terrifying of the science fiction adventures. On today's show, we're bringing you stories about monsters about how make-believe scary creatures can sometimes help us express our humanity, and about the creative people who make those creatures seem real. Such as Millicent Patrick. She's the one who designed the creature in The Creature from the Black Lagoon, this humanoid amphibian that was at the time state-of-the-art, in a movie that became an absolute classic of the monster genre. But... As happens, a famous and powerful Hollywood makeup artist took the credit, meaning that Millicent Patrick was almost completely unknown. Until now, thanks to a book called The Lady from the Black Lagoon by a young filmmaker named Mallory O'Meara. Mallory O'Meara, welcome to Studio 360. Thank you so much for having me. So, Millicent Patrick, how and when did you become aware of her? So when I was a teenager, the creature from the Black Lagoon was the last monster in the Universal Pantheon. I had watched Dracula, Frankenstein, Wolfman, Invisible Man, and the last one was Creature. So I watched Creature from the Black Lagoon as a teenager and went online to look up behind-the-scenes photos and trivia about it, and I saw a woman working on the monster suit. It was just a photograph of Millicent Patrick working on Creature from the Black Lagoon, and it was like being struck by lightning. I had never, ever seen a woman working on a horror movie before, working on a monster movie, working on any movie. It was just a photo from set. It's not a publicity photo. It's huh. just a picture of her painting the creature suit, because that was her job. Right, in this all-men's operation. And she's surrounded by men. She's the only woman in the photo. And that was the first moment where I thought, oh, my God. I could do this. And as a teenager in the 2000s, a movie from 1954 was not just a strange, musty, black-and-white artifact. You actually liked it? 
oh, yeah, I think when you are a horror person or when you really get into anything, there's a draw to look at the classics and what started the genre. So I really, really wanted to see Creature from the Black Lagoon. I wanted to see what started all of this. So tell me more about Millicent Patrick. At that point, she was 30 what? 39-ish? Yeah. And before that, she'd been one of the early female animators at Disney. How did she get there? What was she doing there? So Millicent Patrick got hired in January 1939. She started in the ink and paint department, which was very unique at the time because it was all women. It was the women who inked and painted the animation cells from the male animator's drawing. Uh It wasn't looked as an artistic form. It was looked at as like sewing. Right. So it was just a huge room full of inkers and painters, and that's where Millicent started. And she got promoted from there to color animation and, and special effects where she worked on Fantasia. And then she ended up getting further promoted where she became what's called an in-betweener animator. And she worked on Dumbo, too. Wow. So there was this women's work area. Uh, When she was promoted, was she like the only chick in the bunch? There were a couple others, actually. She was one of the first. She was also working at the time with a woman named Retta Scott, who was the first credited female animator. She worked on Bambi. So there was a few women, but it was definitely a male-dominated space. I want to jump back just for a bit to her childhood because I love her connection to the media tycoon William Randolph Hearst. It's... As you depicted, it's like an episode in a novel. Yes. Explain that. Hearst have a very interesting reach over the life of Millicent Patrick. So her father was a man named Camille Rossi, and he was the superintendent of construction at Hearst Castle in Southern California for 10 years. At San Simeon, which was built in the 20s and beyond. Yes, it was a very glamorous place, but that's where Millicent Patrick grew up. She didn't live in Hearst Castle, but that was sort of her childhood stomping grounds was San Simeon. In like a cottage nearby. Yeah, down at the bottom of the hill. I think where else could Millicent Patrick have gone but Hollywood after growing up at Hearst Castle? Yeah. You begin the book writing about uh, a tattoo of Millicent on your arm. I do. That's what kicked it all off, actually. Well, it's the reason I wrote this book. When you get a tattoo of someone, you sort of become the kiosk of information about them. And the problem with Millicent, when I got the tattoo and until I did all my research, was that there was nothing to say about her. Right. May we look at it? Absolutely. Oh, there. Wow, that's big. There she is on the underside of your left forearm uh, in full realistic detail. As big as a Barbie, bigger than a Barbie. Yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah, she's being embraced by the creature. Yeah. It was your 17th tattoo. Yes. Uh, someone asked me this the other day, and I had to make a count. I think I have 24. Really? Um, so you learned about her, and you were already involved in horror monster culture in various ways, and you got this tattoo. Explain how that led to writing this biography of her, the first published biography yes. of her. Yes. Uh, so I went to a party in New York, and I got into a conversation with a literary agent. And he said, hey, I saw on Facebook that you got this new tattoo. Who is this woman? And I said, yeah, this is Millicent Patrick. She designed the creature, but no one knows if she's alive. No one knew what happened to her. And he said, wow, that'd make a great book. And I laughed, and he said, no, that would make a great book. You should write that. And then it took me a year of research and private investigating, but I did it. I found her her story. So, Millicent Patrick, she was not just the person who made this monster suit in this famous classic monster movie. She she acted. She was in an Abbott and Costello movie, uh, Abbott and Costello Meet Captain Kid. Yeah, there's her, there's her right in the front. So you see her in color. Uh, she plays sort of a tavern wench. Waiter, give me another one. Uh, there's Luke Costello. I beg your pardon? I said, give me another one. It's her getting smooched by a pirate. 
Is that all right with you, Chef? Give her all she wants. And then Lou Costello kisses her. And she's very unhappy about it. <laughs> and yeah. she gets this one scene, but you, I mean, she's stunning. Yeah. She's a very beautiful woman. She is. Now, did that happen a lot? Oh, she's a pretty girl. She's around the set. Yeah, make her that girl. Yeah. Is that, is that how it worked? So it was an interesting thing. She got a lot of background work because of her looks, but she wasn't a great actress. You can see in the scene, she's a little stiff, a little stilted. So she never progressed beyond that. But because of her looks, she was featured in the promotional materials for a lot of movies. But while she was on set, there's a lot of downtime for actors. And she was still a visual artist. So she would sketch portraits of her co-stars. Um, and she, she had done other monsters, right? She, the, there was a... It came from outer artist, space. Yeah. Our mission was to another world. Only an error dragged us toward Earth. It came from outer space with Universal's first science fiction movie. So they were moving from the movies that they had decades before of the 30s and 40s, Wolfman, Dracula, the like like horror coming from Europe Gothic to, horror. Yeah. to horror coming from space. Everyone was afraid of science. Everyone was afraid of the sky. Everyone was afraid Nuclear of Nuclear stuff. Yes. Yeah. So Universal said, we got to get on the science fiction train. And that was the movie. It came from outer space where Bud Westmore said, you know what? Can you design this alien? And she did. So uh, Bud Westmore, he was the makeup director at Universal Studios at this time. And that is a whole other amazing story of this Westmore family in Hollywood, this this makeup dynasty. He and his father and his brothers essentially ran makeup at every studio. Yes. It was crazy. Yeah, and they still continue. Michael Westmore is an incredible makeup artist. It's this huge dynasty. It started with George Westmore, who was their, their father, father. And he invented the makeup department. He was the first person to say to a movie studio, you need to have someone doing makeup because back then, when this was all starting, actors did their own makeup. So the makeup would look different from scene to scene. As, as stage actors still do often. And then he had five sons, all boys. Oh, of course, they're all sons. And they all got into makeup as well. But they were more beauty makeup. Right. They weren't as much monster makeup. Which is so nicely ungendered. This woman it suddenly is the monster yes. person. So she does the alien from uh, came from outer space, and then Bud Westmore says, oh, you're good. We're doing this creature from the Black Lagoon. Do that? Yes. So she impressed Bud so much that he, they said, we have this new movie that we're developing. It wasn't called Creature from the Black Lagoon then. And she said, yeah, let's do it. So describe the creature. Oh, the creature. He's called the Gill Man for a reason. He looks like half man, half fish. He's bipedal, covered in scales, big ridge down his back. He has big gills on the side of his head. His hands and feet end in big clawed, webbed, like, protrusions. But he also has a lot of humanity to him, and I think that's what's made him such an iconic monster. So her job, she's working freelance, create this monster. Some kind of description is given to her, presumably. Yes. 65 years ago. But what's the process? So the process was really weird for Creature because originally they gave it to the prop department. And they, Which makes some sense. It makes some sense, but what they put together was it looked like a onesie with a guppy mask over it, and it was pretty horrifying. Then they gave it to the makeup department. So she did research into fossils and ancient lizards and fish. She put this design together. And, and she drew it? Yes. Presumably? She yeah. drew it. She sketched it out. And those sketches went to Chris Mueller, who sculpted it, and then molded, and then, then eventually cast in foam 
latex, and then it became the creature suit. And then she did the painting on it as right. well. And she did the head as well as the, the body? Whole, the whole kit and caboodle. And she had to do two of them. Yeah, so Riku Browning is the guy who played the creature in the water, and Ben Chapman was the man who played the creature on land. And you can tell the difference if you look really closely because Ben Chapman is taller and has an extra stomach scale to make up for the height difference. Oh, I want to watch a scene from the film where the main character, played by Julie Adams, uh, swims in the Black Lagoon while the gill man, the creature, follows along below watching her and she doesn't see him. So Julie Adams is swimming on the surface of the lagoon and she is just fancy free. She's having a great time. She's laughing and smiling in the sun and it's very pretty. And then we get to an underwater shot in the lagoon and we see the creature who's lurking in the weeds and he's watching her. He's clearly very intrigued by what's happening and he starts to approach her. He swims over and he starts swimming underneath her. And Riku Browning with this like amazing swimming that he was hired to do. He was not an actor. He was a diver. And this is all underwater photography. Yes, it's incredible. The cinematography in this movie is beautiful. And he's swimming upside down. It's an extraordinary scene. It's really, really beautiful. And he's like six feet from her. Yeah, he's so close. And it's, it's so tense, but also so beautiful. Yeah. People love Creature from the Black Lagoon. It is one of this B-movie horror genre, the the great ones. Everybody who cares about those movies thinks. Does the Gill Man, the Creature's suit, what Melissa Patrick did, also stand out? Was it like a groundbreaking thing? Well, this was the only Universal Classic monster that had to go underwater. So that made it very, very unique. And it's also shot in daylight, which is very rare for a monster movie. So the the design had to be impeccable. Right. Um, You argue that uh, she deserved complete credit for creating this creature. And as you've described it today, she deserves it. But she didn't get full credit until now. Um, What's your evidence that, yep, it was her? The guy who sculpted it, Chris Mueller, said, yep, I sculpted it based off of her designs. What we have to remember is back then there was no IMDb. There was no Internet. There was no Twitter. You know, in the screen credits for Creature, the only people who got credit for things were the heads of department. So when you look in the credits for Creature from the Black Lagoon, it says, makeup, Bud Westmore. Westmore just got credit for everything instead of the entire crew that created it. Right. You write about in the book, which I found interesting, too, that she was sent out on tour uh, ahead of the film. Yes. Which which seems strange, right? For this non-famous, below-the-line woman who was involved with making the creature suit, why did it happen? You know, they were coming up with all kinds of ideas to try to promote Creature from the Black Lagoon, and somebody in publicity said, look at Millicent Patrick. She's beautiful. She's very articulate and engaging. Why don't we have a tour called The Beauty Who Created the Beast? Aha. Uh-huh. Except Bud Westmore wasn't very happy about that because he was so used to automatically receiving sole credit for things that he didn't want people to know that he didn't design the creature. So she went from his creator to his caretaker. They sort of shunted her into this like maternal role. But she still said yes. But Bud Westmore said, and furthermore, you have to promise that you won't tell people you designed it. Wow. And then that was successful. The movie's pretty successful. Yes. She comes back and Bud has a problem. She came back to no job. He was still so jealous of the attention that she was getting because she was on TV, she was on the radio, traveling all over that he couldn't stand it. He fired her and she came back and never worked in the Universal Monster Shop again. And he, meanwhile, did lots of work. He did Kubrick's Spartacus. He did To Kill a Mockingbird. The Monsters. 
whereas she kept acting in bit parts for six or seven years, then left movie work in her mid-40s? What what happened to Millicent? Yeah, she never worked behind the scenes in Hollywood ever again. Remember, this was a time where the Westmores were working at almost every single major studio. If she was out with the Westmores, it was bad news for her. So she was effectively blackballed? Oh, you weren't going to get hired. And she lived for another 35 years. Yeah, she died in 1998. And... Did she spend the rest of her life feeling uh, rejected uh, and resentful? She did not. You couldn't keep Millicent Patrick down. Nothing could tamp her spirit to make art. And she continued to be an artist for years and years. Mallory O'Meara, a pleasure meeting you. Pleasure talking to you. Thanks. Thank you so much for having me on. Mallory O'Meara's new book is called The Lady from the Black Lagoon, and it's out now. You can see some photos of Millicent Patrick working on the creature and clips from the film at studio360.org. Coming up next, when reading Kafka makes you undergo your own metamorphosis. The whole time I read it, I was just thinking about my family. That's next on Studio 360. Studio 360. On this episode, we're looking at some fictional creatures who can be upsetting, but who've got things to teach us about real life. Which brings us to Helen Phillips. She is a prize-winning fiction writer who grew up outside Denver. When her older sister, Catherine, was born, she seemed completely healthy and normal, but within a few years... Catherine wasn't growing and progressing as she was supposed to. She started wringing her hands, crossing her eyes, and uh, by the time I was born and Kat was two years old, my parents were in the thick of what is happening to our child. When Kat was seven, doctors were finally able to give her condition a diagnosis. She had Rett syndrome which is a very rare neurological disorder caused by a gene mutation that occurs only in girls. I think it's a particularly cruel disorder because the children are born completely normal. And then when they reach around 12 months of age, they stop progressing. So she couldn't walk or talk or feed herself. As she got older, she had in many ways the capacities of an infant, though her body grew. Helen has a lot of fond memories of her childhood with her sister. Kat's love of music and light, candles, fireworks, Fourth of July. But for Helen, it was a strange way to grow up. We would have all of these adults coming through the house all the time to help her with this. And they would do things like have her crawl across the basement floor to lick a lollipop. And I remember feeling very jealous. Why can't I have a lollipop? I can crawl so easily. Because Kat couldn't talk, sometimes it was hard to know what you were communicating. We just don't know how much they understand. She would cry out, and it's horrible. It's so hard to listen to someone crying out. It's hard to listen to a crying baby. It's hard to listen to anyone crying. And to hear her crying sometimes as a child, or yelling, screaming, and just not knowing what to do for her, not knowing whether it indicated physical or emotional pain. That was hard, and it was frustrating, and you would want the crying to stop. (laughs) But I think that something interesting about being a child is that you know no different. I just accepted that there were all these adults flowing through our home. I just accepted that Kat would get the lollipop when she crawled those feet. 
In a way, it just seemed that that was the way things were. So when I was 17, I enrolled in a class at my high school. They had seminars for juniors and seniors, basically reading great books from the 20th century. And they assigned The Metamorphosis by Kafka. As Gregor Samsa awoke one morning from uneasy dreams, he found himself transformed in his bed into a gigantic insect. I read it over the weekend, and it was one of the most potent and devastating reading experiences of my life up to that point. The whole time I read it, I was just thinking about my family. Greta, Greta, yes, mother? You must go this minute to the doctor. Gregor is ill. Did you hear how he was speaking? That was no human voice. Though the premise is absurd, a man is an insect, the bulk of the story really deals with the way that the family copes with his handicap. Who could find time in this overworked and tired-out family to bother about Gregor more than was absolutely needful? Family duty required the suppression of disgust and the exercise of patience. Nothing but patience. What was so devastating for me was the relationship between Gregor, who has been turned into an enormous insect, and his sister, Greta, who, at the beginning of the story, when, when he first has this strange, horrible thing happen to him, goes out of her way to show him kindness that the parents aren't capable of showing. What she did next, in the goodness of her heart, he could never have guessed at. She offers him many different foods to eat. Half-decayed vegetables, bones from last night's supper covered with a white sauce that had thickened. She brings his food, she sweeps it away. She is the, the thoughtful one, the compassionate one. But then as the story goes on, she starts to lose patience with him and she begins to neglect him. His sister no longer took thought to bring him what might especially please him, but hurriedly pushed into his room with her foot any food that was available. And at the climax of the story, she's the one who says, Things can't go on like this. We have to get rid of this thing in our home. Perhaps you don't realize that, but I do. I won't utter my brother's name in the presence of this creature. And so all I say is, we must try to get rid of it. We've tried to look after it and to put up with it as far as humanly possible. And I don't think anyone could reproach us in the slightest. And she, she has a line. She says, if only... If only he could understand us. Greta, still sobbing, waved a hand to show how unthinkable that was. If only he could understand us. But he can't understand us, so he has to go. And that issue of, does my sibling understand me, was one that was so central. That was such a central question in my life. So at this climactic moment, Gregor, um, wounded, goes into his room and basically curls up and dies. And then the next day, she and her parents start a new life and they take the train out to the countryside and the story ends with a beautiful image of Gret stretching her young strong body. It was like a confirmation of their new dreams and excellent intentions that at the end of their journey their daughter sprang to her feet first and stretched her young body. I, I felt so connected to being the one with the young strong fit body while my sibling, the sibling, was left behind. Gregor is so well-drawn. 
He has such a kindness to him, such a compassion for his family. Even though he fails to communicate with them, he's always thinking of them and wondering if maybe that was Kat's attitude towards all of us. It made me want to be good. It made me want to be like the good Greta and not like the bad Greta. It made me want to be always compassionate towards Kat and um, contemplate what her inner life was like. Her inner life was completely opaque to me. I think the story is about dignity in a way and just trusting that if you knew someone's inner life, you would be able to love them. Catherine Phillips died in 2012 from complications of Rett syndrome. She was 32. Her mother, Susan Zimmerman, published a book about her called Keeping Catherine. Helen Phillips, whom you heard in that story, is a writer. She's got a new novel coming out this July called The Need, which is a thriller about motherhood and loss. Our story was produced and scored by Tommy Bazarian. The excerpts from Kafka's Metamorphosis were read by Paul Hinkis. Coming up, how the Rocky Horror Picture Show embraced and embraced and embraced. Give yourself over to absolute pleasure. That's next on Studio 360. Studio 360. It's not even 11 o'clock yet. I, I bet we could go see a midnight movie. That's Drew Carey in an episode of The Drew Carey Show from 20 years ago. I'm talking about the midnight movie, the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Oh my God, we haven't done that since high school. Yeah. That sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah. Let's do it. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Only this time we won't get wasted and question our sexuality. <laughs> <laughs> like everyone except me did. Today's show is all about monsters. And now we've arrived at a monster musical. The Rocky Horror Picture Show came out when I was in college. Before Rocky Horror became a movie, it was a live show conceived in Britain and imported to America. And for the next installment of our American Icon series, we asked June Thomas, who was also conceived in Britain and also imported to America, to tell the story of Rocky Horror Picture Show. I would like, if I may, to take you on a strange journey. When the Rocky Horror Picture Show was first released in 1975, it flopped spectacularly. Variety found its campy hijinks labored, and Newsweek called it tasteless, plotless, pointless. But after all those terrible reviews, something happened. It was a night out they were going to remember for a very long time. Small independent theatres programmed it as a midnight movie, and audience members started talking back to the screen. The participation became more important than the film itself, and the Rocky Horror Picture Show became a phenomenon. It would end up shattering the record for the longest-running theatrical release in movie history because people kept coming back. I saw it 80 times in high school. <laughs> well, I remember celebrating, you know, my 100th and then my 500th. Maybe a couple thousand? Mm, I don't know. 
months. And if I sat down and did the math, I might cry. More than 40 years after its debut, the Rocky Horror Picture Show still fills movie theaters all across America. Maybe not the 230 venues of 1979, but you can still see it year-round in 80 or so U.S. towns and cities. But why has its appeal endured? Well, for one thing, it's all about sex. On the surface, it's this incredible celebration of individuality and nonconformity and cultural freedom that really speaks to people. That's Scott Miller, artistic director of the New Line Theatre in St. Louis. But I think on a deeper level, Rocky Horror really is about the sexual revolution in America and how insane the country went (laughs) over the sexual revolution. In the movie, Brad and Janet, a newly engaged couple played by Barry Boswick and Susan Sarandon... seek shelter in a remote castle. Come inside. They find themselves at a strange gathering. You've arrived on a rather special night. It's one of the master's affairs. Oh. Where Dr. Frankenfurter... Enchanté. <laughs> a cross-dressing mad scientist, played with over-the-top charm by Tim Curry... And what charming underclothes you both have. ...is about to reveal his latest creation, Rocky the man of his dreams. I can make you a Frank quickly seduces both Brad and Janet. (gasps) You tricked me! I wouldn't have! I've never, never! Yes, yes, I know. But it isn't all bad, is it? Kills a biker named Eddie. It was a mercy killing. And tricks his guests into eating Eddie's flesh. That's a rather tender subject. Another slice, anyone? On a British chat show, Richard O'Brien, who wrote Rocky Horror and played Riff Raff, described the plot another way. I think the reason for its longevity is that it's a fairy tale, and it's a retelling of Genesis. Brad and Janet are Adam and Eve, and the serpent is Frankenfurter. Or as Scott Miller put it... It's about two young people who go into the woods and find themselves. The woods is the place where you go and kind of what you think is torn apart and reconstructed for you. And so Brad and Janet go into the woods. They are forced to confront themselves, their own sexuality, their own feelings about that stuff. And they come out the other end changed people, just like in a Shakespeare play. I first saw the Rocky Horror Picture Show in Newark, Delaware in the early 1980s. Those boisterous late-night screenings were the closest thing the college town had to a gay bar. And as a newly arrived foreign grad student, it was the kind of uniquely American experience I craved. Which is odd, because O'Brien and almost all of his early collaborators were British or Australian. That doesn't surprise Scott Miller. I think it took outsiders, non-Americans, to look at this moment in American cultural history and see the truth of it and the ridiculousness of it and the complexity of it. And what they saw was a nation losing its mind over sex. I'm just a sweet transvestite. Uh, Frankenfurter 
represents the sexual revolution, the completely unfettered free sexuality, whatever the consequences. <laughs> Give yourself over to absolute pleasure. And Brad and Janet are America reacting to this, grappling with this. Like a lot of America did, Brad is freaked out by it, tries to turn it back, is scared of it. It's your fault. You're to blame. I thought it was the real thing. Oh, come on, Brad, admit it. You liked it, didn't you? And like a lot of America, Janet embraces it, arguably goes too far. Touch it, touch it, touch it, touch me. And it leaves both of them shattered by the end, <laughs> which is pretty much what the sexual revolution did to us. At that precise moment in the mid-1970s, the hottest pop stars, think David Bowie, Freddie Mercury, and Mark Bolan, also happened to be stretching gender boundaries. Frank has to be a glam rocker because glam rock was that one moment, that was some genre in, in rock and roll where gender was really fluid. And that's what was scary to people <laughs> um, in the late 60s, early 70s. And that's what's scary to Brad and Janet. I'm not much of a man by the light of day, but by night I'm one hell of a lover. That's what makes Frank the monster, quote unquote, that we don't know his gender. It's fluid. It's both. It's neither, you know. There was a lot going on with Tim Curry's Frankenfurter. I play um, Frankenfurter, who is a kind of uh, new variation on the mad scientist of horror films that we all know and love. It is parody, but it also, I'm, I play it and think it as a kind of grisly reality. His ripped clothing prefigured the aesthetics of the punk movement. His mad scientist act reflected post-atom bomb anxiety about humans playing God. And his unruly sexual energy updated an entire movie genre. Michael Rennie was ill the day the earth stood still. But he told us where we stand. The science fiction and horror movies uh, in the first half of the 20th century were full of sublimated sex, <laughs> you know, sex just under the surface. And Rocky Horror kind of acknowledges that and just yanks all of it up to the surface. Do you think Frank is the hero of this show? I mean... I don't. And the answer is it's Janet. She's the one who learns the most and changes the most over the course of the story. She's a really different person at the end of the story than she is at the beginning. Brad is somewhat, but not nearly to the same extent. This is Janet's hero myth story. Oh, if only we hadn't made this journey. If only the car hadn't broken down. She has to go through these trials and tribulations and learn things. She goes to the underworld, quote unquote, and comes out the other side with new knowledge and new wisdom. Planet, Schmanet, Janet, you better wise up, Janet Wise. He might not be the hero, but Frankenfurter is undoubtedly the pulsating engine of the musical. Tim Curry is just this magical combination of rock and roll and theater 
she doesn't shy away from any kind of theatrical gesture and and here's a part where it's encouraged and yet has the vocal chops and the rock and roll chops that's mark shaman the grammy emmy and tony winning composer and lyricist best known for hairspray we talked while he was at the piano in his home studio so it all just comes together in this wonderful boulia base of of music and theater and campiness and his the way he sometimes puts on airs like a, an old movie actress, and uh, it's all just wonderful. How's you I see you've met my faithful handyman. Where's it go? Uh, that's not exactly right. There we go. Uh, you wouldn't have noticed the difference. And now I can't remember any other lyrics. <laughs> I'm just a sweet transvestite. From transo- transsexual Transylvania. Shaman was one of those people who went to the Waverly Theater in New York's Greenwich Village every weekend. When I went to see Rocky Horror, yeah, that was yet another musical that, that was teaching me how rock and roll music and rock and roll lyrics can also certainly set a vibe and and tell a story in a very different way from Rodgers and Hammerstein. And while Rocky Horror used a new kind of music, it still followed a familiar formula. It's a fairly traditional old school musical comedy. The first song introduces the themes and topics for the show. We meet the heroes one by one. The river was deep, but I swam it. Janet. The future is ours, so let's plan it. Janet. So please, don't tell me to can it. Janet. I have one thing to say, and that's damn it. Janet, I love you. Um, we get songs that say, this is who I am. We get songs that say, this is what I want. Now all I want to know is how to go. I've tasted blood, and I want more. More, more, more. We get all the traditional show tunes. What's subversive about it is that it's rock and roll, and particularly originally in London in 73 and 74, like pretty raw rock and roll. But it's got this very freaky, crazy content to it that was part of what made it so alternative and so kind of, you know, naughty. It was that both traditional and totally not traditional all wrapped up together. The Rocky Horror Picture Show wasn't just any old midnight movie. That's because, at some point in 1976, something happened that nobody was expecting, and it snowballed in a way that nobody could have predicted. There was a guy, he was a kindergarten teacher named Lewis. That's Sal Pira, who attended more than 3,000 midnight movie screenings in New York City and later became president of the official Rocky Horror Picture Show fan club. And he always sat in the balcony in the front row, and he had a great voice. One night, when Janet put a newspaper on her head and was walking in the rain, he just yelled out to be funny, buy an umbrella, you cheap bitch. It was like, then it became like electrical. People were like, oh my God, that's funny. That's great. You know, we can add to our movie experience. And we started to think of things to yell. And soon, talking in the movies wasn't the only rule that was being broken by the audience. When Brad and Janet are caught in a rainstorm, they shoot water pistols in the theater. When Frank proposes a toast, they toss slices of toast at the screen. And of course, they dance along with the time warp. I've got to. 
Jeffrey Weinstock, a professor of English at Central Michigan University, has identified three distinct types of callbacks in the Rocky Horror canon. The first is what I call predictive. Those are the moments where audience members demonstrate to the fullest their knowledge of the film because they preempt something that is to come. That and the other early audience callouts we'll hear come courtesy of Say It, the Rocky Horror Picture Show audience participation album recorded in New York in 1983. There are then what I call simultaneous responses, and that's where the audience overlays their own comment upon something that's taking place on the screen. That round of applause at the end of the bit explains a lot about the thrill of Rocky Horror's interactivity. Members of the audience are congratulating themselves for getting it right. The third category is what I call reactive. And this is a response from the audience to something that has just been said or has just taken place. There's a line later on when Rocky Horror is singing, I'm just seven hours old. The Rocky Horror callbacks were like an early version of the internet meme, a series of building blocks that morphed and changed beyond the control or knowledge of their creators. We were establishing the fan club with the studio, and my friend Alex and I went out to California. So, of course, we were going to see Rocky, see what they were doing. And I had a line that I had invented. The criminologist says, and so... And so I came up with this stupid line. And Betsy Ross used to sit home and so and so. And the criminologist looked down and went, and so. And I thought, I'm the cleverest person ever. I traveled 3,000 miles, and I can't wait to yell my Betsy Ross line. And here I am at this theater that certainly had not started showing Rocky until after the Waverly. He's about to say, and so, and I'm about to yell out, and Betsy, all of a sudden, half of the theater was yelling, Betsy Ross used to sit home, and so, and so, and, and so. Wait a minute. It had traveled ahead of me. Other people who had seen it in New York or seen it in Chicago that moved to, it was such a weird phenomenon. We were very excited about it. We, we thought, gee, we helped make this. Don't dream it, be it. The sight of Tim Curry's androgynous, outrageously sexy, sexually voracious Frankenfurter drew a new crowd to the theatre. People who were or saw themselves as outsiders, especially what we'd now call queer and gender non-conforming kids. It's like I can't tell the story of my life without talking about Rocky Horror Picture Show, I think. That's actress, writer and activist Shakina Nafak. She first saw the movie in Los Angeles in the 1990s, when she was a preteen. And I shoplifted fishnets and nail polish and, and eyeliner and like did all my makeup in a bathroom somewhere. After the movie was ended, I snuck into the restroom of the theater and like tried to clean it all off so that I got back in the car like looking like a normal 12-year-old kid. Frank's presence was crucial. It was the first 
time that I had ever seen someone like me in a movie. For many hardcore fans, the Rocky Horror audience became the family many of its members lacked, a tribe that supported and loved them. But ever since the movie was first released, some people have worried that its unconventional representations of gender were a bad influence on America's youth. Shakina Nafak's parents had tried to discourage her from seeing the film. My family and the authority figures in my life at school as well, saw Rocky Horror as this proselytizing of queerness and gender nonconformity that was really dangerous to the social order, which it is, thankfully. But I was really out and loud and proud as a young queer person in, in a time where that wasn't happening. It was the, the 90s were like the beginning of the queer youth movement, and I was really part of the forefront of that. And especially my queerness was expressed through alternative gender presentation, which really terrified people. Uh, there weren't a lot of other places you could go to look for that. I mean, maybe when the birdcage came out and to Wong Fu, th- there was some drag in the in the consciousness. But that was like a different kind of camp. And Rocky Horror was, was sexual and ruckus and freewheeling and punk rock. And that's kind of what I brought, you know, into my high school, which just really scared people. And, and I think... When they tried to snuff that out of me, a way to do that was to snuff out Rocky Horror Picture Show. Still, tastes, values, and attitudes were totally different in 1975. Why does this film, which may be beloved but is rarely acclaimed as a masterpiece, still captivate young people? Rocky tends to operate in a kind of a nostalgic mode today. Jeffrey Weinstock. There's a nostalgia on the part of those who were part of the cult film phenomenon for a time when Rocky was risque rather than routine. And it may be that part of what is transgressive in Rocky's spectatorship today is indulging in a kind of anti-political correctness. That is, the same people who um, would go on a slut walk and would get outraged by the idea of slut shaming are the same ones who sort of gleefully will shout slut at Janet each time her name is said. The very language of the show is awkward to 21st century ears. When the high schoolers on the TV show Glee performed a tribute to Rocky Horror, they changed the words transsexual Transylvania to... Transylvania. The word transsexual is a tricky word. It's a word that, you know, is dated. For me, I claim the label of transsexual a lot because... So much of my journey has been about wanting to finally have an integrated, passionate, healthy sex life, to be a sexual being, which I could never be in the wrong body. And so to to remove sex from that journey and that identity does a disservice to my own act of reclamation. So I say, leave the word, sing the word. I'm just a sweet transvestite Transsexual Transylvania <laughs> And now, Frank and Furter, your time has come. Say goodbye to all of this. At the end of the movie, Frankenfurter is murdered by his not-so-faithful servants, Riff Raff and Magenta. <laughs> that outcome seems unavoidable to Jeffrey Weinstock. Frank's reign, I've come to think, is a bit like the film itself. It's a a temporary break from reality that 
can't persist. Um, the ending, to my mind, is very much about the reassertion of order. But it seems inevitable to me. Um, we didn't and still don't have a culture in which Frank's hedonism, not to mention murder and cannibalism, can reign unchecked. No one watching the movie in the 1970s would have been surprised by that ending. In the movies it was parodying and in society as a whole, a proud, proselytizing pansexual couldn't be allowed to prosper. The outcasts who found family at Rocky Horror would expect that least of all. Still, if you were someone who held your tongue when being yelled at or bullied, those midnight screenings were a sanctuary. A place where, with water gun in one hand and toast in the other, you could finally yell back. always say, how could you put up with all the yelling and screaming and the cursing and the things like that? And you know what? That's all part of a bunch of young people letting themselves go, growing up, you know, going through puberty. I think that Rocky Horror is benchmark. It is a time capsule of a really particular moment in queer liberation when the carnal celebration of queer desire became pop culture. That crossover really helped so many people. I think what's appealing about Rocky is that it breaks lots of rules. The anarchy of screaming at the movie screen and throwing food at the movie screen. It was just so freeing and so wild. It feels subversive. I think it will always feel subversive as long as America is hung up on sex, which I think will be always. It's just a jump to the left. June Thomas produced our story with help from Studio 360's Jocelyn Gonzalez and production assistance from Tori Bedford. You can hear more of June on the terrific podcast she co-hosts, The Waves. Our American Icon series is made possible by a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities. And that's it for this week's show. Studio 360 is a production of PRI, Public Radio International, in association with Slate. Our executive producer is... Jocelyn Gonzalez. Our senior editor is... Andrew Adam Newman. Our sound engineer is... Sandra lopez Monsalve. Our producers are... Evan Chung. Lauren Hansen. Sam Kim. Zoe Saunders. Tommy Bazarian. Our production assistant is... Morgan Flannery. And I'm Kurt Anderson. He has big gills on the side of his head. His hands and feet end in big clawed, webbed-like protrusions. But he also has a lot of humanity to him, and I think that's what's made him such an iconic monster. Thanks for listening. PRI Public Radio International. Next time on Studio 360. There are people actually living by this code of honors right now in China, and those are the people I want to capture with this particular film. Depicting the humanity of China's new criminal underworld. They are living among us. This is not something fictional from novels. Filmmaker Jia Junke on his new gangster epic, Ash is Purest White, next time on Studio 360.